0: is john bergen i use he him and his and i'm recording this in philadelphia on unceded Lenni lenape land in case you didn't know you're listening to the word is resistance a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about surviving resisting and thriving in our current context of violence repression and white supremacist heteropatriarchal colonial capitalism we ask what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance in showing up for liberation The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who came together for a movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freene Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is also a project of surge faith, surge, or showing up for racial justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everyone, but geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. All right, this week's podcast is going to be a bit different. This coming Sunday, I'll be away from home. I'll be worshiping at uh, First Mennonite Church in San Francisco and hearing a sermon from two of my mentors, the restorative justice facilitator Elaine Entz and the radical Bible scholar activist Ched Myers. So I'm excited to see them and be in sacred space with them and in the spirit of learning from mentors who have been in the movement for a long time. I thought I would turn over most of this episode to an interview with a movement mentor from my home congregation. Sure. Um can you start by introducing yourself how you want to be introduced?
1: Uh yeah, I'm uh, Betsy Morgan.
0: Great. That's pretty easy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't sure if there was some like title you wanted attached to your name or a list of a kind or anything. I have never
1: used titles much.
0: Betsy has been doing radical Christian activism for a long time, especially around immigration justice. And with the powerful escalation by immigration justice organizers across the so-called United States, including a now three-week encampment here in Philly, first at the ICE office and then outside our city hall, it, it seems an important time to draw deeply from our roots and lean into the wisdom of white folks like Betsy who've been involved for decades, going back uh, all the way to the sanctuary movement of the 1980s. So as the demand to abolish ICE gains steam and as violent repression for the US government only intensifies, we need all the wisdom and resources we can muster so we can stand alongside our immigrant of color siblings. And this week our gospel passage is John's telling of Jesus feeding the crowds with five loaves and two fish. It's a powerful story. It begins with Jesus being followed by the crowds still in need of healthcare, seeking healing. And Jesus, always the working class organizer, realizes you can't ask people to wait at the free healthcare clinic unless there's food. If you're gonna educate and organize the people, there'd better be a meal involved. So he asks his fellow organizer, Philip, to get some food and Philip tells him, They'll bankrupt the movement just trying to buy bread. I guess no one's written a grant large enough to cover the food costs. So then Andrew, who either has immense faith or is out of his mind, mentions that there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus has the organizers get seated. No small feat if you ever try to do that at an outdoor rally. And then Jesus gives thanks for the food and starts handing it out. And like a lot of events where you're anxious, you've under-predicted the turnout and you're sure people are going to get upset, suddenly there's food piling up and no more tables to put it on. As folks start sharing, suddenly they realize there's a lot to share. Abundance shows up. As a pastor and organizer, I struggle a lot with abundance. I support people to make healthy decisions, I encourage them to take care of themselves, And I also yearn for them to show up big. Sometimes we find abundance in showing up to the action together. Sometimes we find abundance in sharing a meal and sometimes we feel so depleted we don't show up at all. Sometimes the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what we can do limit us. They keep us trapped within the limits of the five loaves we see in front of us instead of imagining what other food might appear if we just begin sharing. It seems to me that wherever Betsy's been in her life, she's helped her community expand its sense of abundance. I see her do it here at Germantown Mennonite, Um, and in the sanctuary movement of the 1980s, her mainline church, Central Baptist in Wayne, Pennsylvania, showed up in some big ways. So that's enough for me. Let's get back to Betsy.
1: Uh, We decided that um, we were going to become a sanctuary church, and... um, It was preceded by, I mean, this is a congregation that's very interested in um, issues of social justice. And um, we had been aware of what was happening in Central America, that the United States was supporting the right-wing governments of El Salvador and Guatemala as they were oppressing their people. Um, And this was a condition that grew out of uh, the fact that these countries are land poor, and when cash crops came in and there was a land grab, the rich took the land and uh, turned the peasant class into workers, into serfs. And as you can imagine, there was a good bit of um, uh, distress <laughs> around that. Um, and so there was, there had been um, kind of um, pushback and... Activism around that uh, early on. In fact, in in 1930, um, when the peasants, there was a peasant uprising, it was so brutally crushed that the indigenous people either were killed or went underground. So that was pretty much the end of the indigenous peasant population, but there were still a number of people that were um, in in the plantation system being abused. Um, And that just really continued into... um, the 20th century, obviously. Um, and in the 1960s, you know, around the time of, uh, time after the Cuban Revolution, there were a number of leaders in Central America that were, um, felt that they needed to save Latin America from the socialist deceptions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was really an increase in strong armed government. Um, which increased the pushback also from the peasant class. And then in the 1970s, you had the um, dissemination of liberation theology, which really was a set of ideas around which uh, the workers organized. And there were a number of small bands of um Guerrilla activists said by the end of the 1970s had formed into the FMLN, which was the major um, um, force, guerrilla force, that stood against the government. And then in the 1980s, the full-blown war broke out. Um, and the U.S. sided with uh, the right-wing government out of a sort of, um, sort of, fear that a, a Cold War mentality, really, that necessitated support of a committedly anti-communist regime, which means that any of the people caught in the terrible violence who wanted to escape could not get asylum in the United States. Um, that would have been a, you know, a contradiction of what the U.S. was doing, contributing a million dollars a day to the government suppression of the uprising. So you had a lot of, um, of peasant people being forced off of their land and having nowhere to go. Um, so churches in the United States decided that they were going to um, make a, a political uh, lesson out of this, and they were also going to extend a hand to these people so that there were churches that were – sending assistance that were helping refugees get up to Canada. There's a kind of underground railroad. And then there was also this movement, a very public movement, to bring refugees into churches in a very public way where they would announce they were doing this. There would be a huge celebration of, um, of um, introducing the refugee to the community. The press was invited. Um, and this was the movement that led to, I mean, that was called the Sanctuary Movement when churches opened their doors publicly to refugees from El Salvador and um, Guatemala. So that's the immediate context. Um, Central Baptists prepared for this. We were aware of what was going on. And um, so that we started by having our own study of liberation theology. We went for a long, long um, adult learning class where we were... Uh, reading Liberation Theology, um, and studying it, and it was at the end of that that those of us that were in the class formed uh, a sanctuary committee, and we took a proposal that Central Baptist become a uh, sanctuary church to the church council and then ultimately to the congregation. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of discussion, there was a lot of uh, debate, because this is an act of civil disobedience, or it was an act of civil disobedience, meaning we had no idea who could be arrested, but since it was civil disobedience, you had to expect the possibility that the pastor and the um, leader of the congregation, which at that point was myself, uh, could be arrested on behalf of the congregation. So we had to be ready for that. That never happened. It was just part of what fed into the uh, dialogue and the debate. So it was in '84 that we had this meeting and uh, took the vote. And an interesting factor was that at Central Baptist at that point, there was no pastor. The church was between pastors. We had an interim, um, Harry Moore, but we had no pastor. So this was an action taken by the congregation, Um, And our applicant for the pastoral position, of course, had to realize that this was happening and that he did and came happily into that. But this was not a pastoral-led movement. This was definitely grassroots coming out of congregation. congregation. So then what we had to do since the congregation accepted this, we didn't know whether uh, a refugee was going to be sent our way or not, but we had to be ready so we... Turned a couple of rooms at the back of the sanctuary into a nice little apartment. Um, And then we declared ourselves ready. And um, we were sent a single man. His family was still in El Salvador. His name was Mauricio. He came to live there. Um, Someone from the church had to be there at all times, so people were sleeping over. This was in case uh, um, immigration folks came into the church. Somebody had to be there to represent. The church, so someone uh, slept, um, helped out with meals. It was kind of a, it was like the um, the homeless um, movement that a lot of churches have participated in, where someone is there with them overnight and taking meals and being a presence with them. Um, we had a big welcoming ceremony where all the other refugees at other sanctuary churches in Philadelphia came. Um, it was the full drama with, you know, Bandanas over the face and a big straw hat because the whole point was to say, oh, We're doing this and we're doing this for a reason, and this is a protest against the U.S. Um, support of the wars in um, Central America that are creating refugees every day.
0: Mauricio stayed in sanctuary for two years. As the war wound down and he became terribly homesick, they arranged for him to go back home and reunite with his family and as they provided sanctuary they also lobbied representatives in the US to stop funding the war and built relationships with radical communities in El Salvador and to this day Betsy and her husband Ron continue to visit communities there I think it's critically important that faith communities committing to immigration justice work especially predominantly white faith communities know more about the history of the sanctuary movement in the 80s to draw inspiration from its strengths and lessons from its weaknesses and failures. I'll include a bunch of resources in the transcript of this. Now, now part of John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000 is about relationships. Andrew knows a young boy who has some food, and that chain of relationships opens up the miracle. So I asked Betsy how relationships and relationship building shaped the work of Sanctuary, and she gave me some deeper history on Central Baptist.
1: I think it's- and, and I hope this isn't too much of a digression, but I think it's it's fair to look at the the larger context for central Baptist because in terms of building relationships um, with people in need, that goes just like it was almost second nature for this congregation. In the 1960s, they had supported uh, Cuban refugees, Nigerian refugees. They were primarily the primary support for a couple of Vietnamese families during the Vietnamese War. Um, in 1964, they sent money to rebuild the churches in Birmingham, Alabama, that had been burned down during the Civil Rights Conflict. Following the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, they mortgaged the church to the tunes of $100,000, which you know obviously was more money th- than that amount sounds now, um, uh, to to help with the most pressing needs of urban communities that they did. Job recruitment and training, rehab of buildings, built a daycare, uh, low-income housing, um, scholarships <clears throat> for the Martin Luther King School for Social Change. So my point just is this congregation is used to building relationships across lines.
0: In case you missed that. That was two decades of direct support to people of color struggling against white supremacy, including mortgaging the church to pay for rebuilding, organizing, and community development work. That's a dedication to reparations. I know that these decisions aren't easy, and even with a radical legacy, people, especially economically privileged white people, can get overwhelmed by our fear and uncertainty, by our sense of scarcity. I asked Betsy how she led the community through some of those tough decisions she was honest some people left every time the church made a one made one of those decisions but others joined and with sanctuary there was a unique chance to partner with other faith communities in the philly suburbs and build broader relationships within the church though it came down to one-on-one organizing making space to name and move through fear and a deep commitment to the practice of liberation
1: um I made a lot of personal visits. I went around and, and you know met personally with a number of people and families, people who had questions, people who had doubts, um, people who needed to talk about what was bothering them. I did a lot of just listening. You know, it helps to have been a teacher. You know, all those years. Yeah, yeah. Listening to students and realizing that they all come with some baggage and questions and. Problems, and then it doesn't, it, there's nothing wrong with asking these kinds of questions or having doubts, and thank heavens they were asked because then we didn't feel like we were caught unprepared. No? People were asking all the hard questions. So, it was, it was, it took time, and I think the study, uh, study of liberation theology really was a help because we had this kind of, you know, sort of scholarly commitment. You know, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just political anger or political angst. There was a scholarly base, um, and you know, there was a human base.
0: Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just of the moment. It was a theological commitment. Knows. It was a historical commitment. It was like a relational commitment. It was all of these, all of these things.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Studying the history, studying the theology, studying the consequences. Um studying ourselves so i think that's it you just you really have to take the time to hear every person's point of view you cannot rush it you can't get the wiki not wiki sorry um you can't get the uh, wikipedia version Mm -hmm. of liberation theology you've got to read the stuff You know, you've got to read Soul and Tanami. You've got to practice liberation theology the way they did it in the uh, base Christian communities. You've got to try to do it yourself. Um, You know, it's it's taking the time. Taking the time to talk to each other. And, you know, actually, I I remember very fondly our preparing the apartment for him because there were four of us who were kind of the core group of that. And we would meet every... uh, forget what night of the week it was. We'd meet to work on the um, apartment and we'd have dinner together. And, and it was really um, a solidarity um, commitment.
0: call to action is to do what I did to make this podcast. Reach out to someone in your community who has been deeply involved in struggle or deeply engaged in the building of connection and commitment. Call them up. Sit down with them if you can, whether they're doing social justice work now or have in the past or are simply practicing believing in abundance every day. Show them you value they are and that you recognize you have things to learn from them then visit them a second time make time for it believe you have enough time to learn from others enough time to build deep connection thank you for joining me today and as always let us know how it goes by commenting on our soundcloud or facebook pages you can find out more about surge at showingupforracialjustice.org And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have any questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, copyright information, etc. Thanks to our sound editor Maxwell Pearl. And uh, again, thank you to Betsy Morgan for taking a call from me and sharing her wisdom. Blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed and of transforming the movement and transforming the world. Amen.